A worthless person, a wicked man, goes about with crooked speech, winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his finger, with perverted heart devises evil, continually so in discord. Therefore calamity will come upon him suddenly. In a moment he will be broken beyond healing. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness that breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. This is God's word. You may be seated. So we're looking at yet another list uh, from the Bible. Uh, This summer we're looking at various lists found throughout the Scriptures, Old and New Testament. And so we're in the Old Testament in the book of Proverbs, which is a book of wisdom. It has many sayings that help us in very practical terms live out our lives and faithfulness to God. And this is a passage that deals with one of the most important Christian teachings, namely the doctrine of sin. Biblical idea of sin is one of the reasons why I'm a Christian. I, um, I just could not find another explanation for why the world is the way it is. And so I remain a Christian to this day because I am yet to hear of an alternative that fits the data as well as the Christian doctrine of sin. And so I'll talk about that today, and if you are not a Christian, I pray that this message will convince you to become one, because I really think this is the best way to explain our reality. And if you are already a Christian, I hope that today's message allows you to see this reality more clearly, and ultimately will lead you to worship Jesus more fully. I'd like to look at our passage under three headings. Uh, pretty simply divided into three parts, one, worthless man, two, worthy God, and three, the wonder of the God-man. Worthless man, worthy God, and the wonder of the God-man. I'm going to be dealing with some bigger pieces uh, that we all need to understand how this world works, how our hearts work, how we are to live. So I'm going to ask you to be patient with me and to follow me. I'm going to try to make it as accessible and clear as I can. But my conviction is that these bigger pieces allow us then to build our lives in the right way. So I think these are very practically important things. However, they may seem like abstract issues at first. So let me start in a lighthearted way because it will get dark as we go on. If you like uh, The Office, the TV show, uh, you may know that Michael Scott, the branch manager, has this irrational hatred of Toby uh, Flenderson, the HR person, and just absolutely everything bugs Michael Scott about Toby. And so in one, one episode, Michael turns to Toby and asks him a profound question. He says, why are you the way that you are? He just can't understand how a person like that can exist, a person that seems to be against everything Michael is for. Now, it's, a, it's irrational. It's funny. 
But this is a question we all must ask ourselves. And very few human human beings dare ask themselves that question. Why are we the way we are? Or to put it differently, what is wrong with us? What is wrong with us? Just look around. Why are our lives so dysfunctional? Why are our hearts so troubled? Why do we hurt each other so much? Why can't we agree on what is good for everybody? Why does everyone struggle to live up to even their own standards, let alone other people's standards? Why are communities so broken? Now, the Bible gives us the answer to that, and the Bible says it is because we are sinful. The reason for all of that, the reason for all the dysfunction, all the brokenness, all the confusion is because we are sinful and sin is present in us and in this world. There there is a bug in our system. There is a virus in our body. There is faulty wiring in our house. There is something that is fundamentally and often invisibly wrong with us on such a basic level that it throws everything else off. Sin is an internal problem. It's a fundamental problem. It is part of our nature, and so it is no wonder that everything around us is affected by it. Now, there have been various other explanations of this human dysfunction, but none has been able to account for the complexity of the problem or offer an effective solution. And I will challenge you and anybody who's watching or any of your friends, anybody who's, anybody who's walking away from Christianity, anybody who's considering Christianity, anybody who's rejected Christianity, I'm going to challenge you to provide a better explanation of why the world is the way it is, why human beings act the way they act. Give me an explanation that is better than this ancient biblical doctrine of sin. I have not been able to find one. Maybe you have one. Please talk to me. I would love to to discuss it with you because I cannot see anything that fits our reality better than what the Bible says about it. Think about all the communities, all the societies built on specific economic or moral or educational or political or therapeutic ideals. There have been many. We can't say that we haven't tried. You know, nobody in the right mind would say, well, humanity just hasn't given a good try at fixing itself. We have really tried. There are many examples of people gathering and saying, okay, we're going to do it right. And this is what we need, and they have principles, and they have laws, and they have ideas, and they have structure, and they have codes, and they, they have all of that in place, and they are convinced that this is going to work, and it never works. It never works. We can't point to any society that has come up with, a, with, with an understanding of reality that explains why it's dysfunctional, and provides a solution that actually brings us into internal and external peace. There's no example of a lasting culture that has that. The ancient biblical doctrine of sin is still the best explanation of reality. G.K. Chesterton said that the doctrine of sin, and specifically the doctrine of original sin, that we're all are affected by sin, that we're born sinners and we just then act in sinful ways because we are sinful. 
Chesterton said this, is, this, this doctrine is the only part of Christian theology that can be proven because you can see it in the street, he said. He said, you just can't deny that there is something wrong with all of us. You just can't live your life and pretend that actually there is no problem. We've kind of got it figured out. Everything is fine. Everybody's doing well. Nobody can say that. Nobody can say that. So in Chesterton's thinking, he's saying, that is proof. That is proof that at least this part of our faith, this understanding of original sin, at least this part is right, because you can prove it. You can just go outside and you can see it. Now, I will get to why humanity is so keen on rejecting this doctrine a little later, but first we must explain what sin is. Now look at our passage, verses 12 through 15. A worthless person, a wicked man, which, by the way, is addressed to all of us because we're all sinners, goes about with crooked speech, winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his finger, with perverted heart, devises evil, continually sowing discord. Now, this is a poetic way of describing what sin is and what it looks like in someone's life. And it begins with this, I think, very interesting phrase. It describes sinners as worthless people. A sinner is a worthless person, meaning a person without worth, a person lacking something essential, a person who is not living in accordance with who they are, a person who's not fulfilling their purpose, their function in life. In other words, the essence of sin is distortion. There is something twisted. There is something lacking. There is something different about us. Sin is taking something good and it's misusing it or it's abusing it. It's twisting it. It's changing it. Now, according to the Bible, sin entered the world when Adam and Eve ate of the tree in the middle of the garden, even though God told them not to do that. But instead of functioning in obedience to God, Trusting Him, trusting His Word, trusting that what He says is good, trusting in His love, trusting in His good plan, keeping their right place in God's world, in other words, they placed themselves at the center. And so they did what they wanted to do, even though God told them different. They pursued their desires, even though those desires were not directed by God. And so they displaced God. And they started functioning as God themselves. So the whole reality gets distorted when God and humans are not occupying their right respective places in the world. The world and people in it lose their worth. They lose their function. They, they lose their purpose and operate in a distorted way. That's why... Proverbs calls sinners worthless people. There's something lacking. There's something twisted. There's something distorted. They're not functioning properly. A worthless person, a wicked man, goes about with crooked speech, winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his finger, with perverted heart devises evil, continually sowing discord. Now see the language of distortion, distortion in this description. Crooked. Perverted, sowing discord. 
devising evil. This is the language of, of somebody taking something that is good and twisting it and misusing it and changing it to fit other purposes. Look at verses 17 through 19. Now, don't be thrown off by the numbers here, okay? How many abominations are there? Six or seven? Well, there are more than, there's more than seven. This is a poetic way of drawing our attention to the list, of saying, pay attention to every item on this list. Everything is important. Here are six. Here's another one. Pay attention. Know that these are descriptive things that are important for us to understand. So here's the list of seven abominations. Haughty eyes. What is that but a distorted view of self and others? I'm not looking at myself or you in the way I should be. I'm looking down on you. I'm, I'm putting myself higher than you. That's a distortion of my position. A lying tongue. That's a distortion of speech. God gave us speech so we can say right things, good things, communicate reality, and here we come, and we twist it, and we change it. Hands that shed innocent blood. That's a distortion of power. We're using something that God has given us, strength, right? Action. But instead of using it for good, to build up, to cultivate the world, to build up other people, we're actually using this for evil, and so we shed blood, innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans. That's a distortion of imagination. God gave us imagination to wonder at Him, to worship Him, to engage uh, on, on a level of, of poetry and art, to aspire, and yet we twist it and we use it to devise wicked plans. We use a creativity not for good but for evil. Feed that make haste to run to evil. That's a distortion of ambition. Instead of aspiring and desiring to do what is good, we make haste to run to evil. A false witness who breathes out lies. Distortion of truth. Instead of supporting truth and affirming truth and saying, no, this is what happened. This is fact. This is real. This is objective. What do we do? We distort it. We say, that's not what happened. And it doesn't really matter what happened. One who sows discord among brothers is a distortion of community. You take relationships that are supposed to be close, and you divide, and you separate. You pit people against one another. You fragment. Now, in every case of these seven abominations, it's talking about something good and then misusing it or abusing it. Now, this is what sin is. The essence of sin is distortion. It's taking something good and misusing it. That's what sin is. You know, we, we tend to separate. We tend to say, well, there's sin somewhere out there. And there's, there's good here. There's evil here. Those are not separate things. Evil is a distorted good. It's taking something that is good and misusing it and abusing it. Now, let me give you an illustration. Somebody comes to you. They've written a book of poems. They've worked very hard on it. They put all their imagination, their creativity. They publish the book. They bring it to you as a gift, and, you, and they say, I want to share this with you. This is, this is, I think this is so, it's such an expression of who I am. And I want to share this with you, and I think you will really enjoy it. And I think you will be encouraged and built up, and maybe you aspire to write poetry yourself. 
And you give the book, and the next time you come over to your friend's house, you realize they've been using your book of poetry to start fire in their fireplace. It's page by page, carelessly. Is it wrong to start a fire with paper? No. But what are you supposed to do with the book? What are you supposed to do with the book of poetry from a friend? You're supposed to read it, right? You're supposed to enjoy it. This is sin. Sin is taking something good, taking a gift, and instead of putting it in the proper place and using it in the right way, you're misusing it and ultimately abusing it. And so we do that. We build our identity on things that are not meant to make us who we are. We can build our identity on career or, or, or on, on, on sex. or We can seek comfort in food. We can elevate family above everything else. We can do all these things. And what are we doing? We're taking things that are good, but we're misusing them. We're putting them at a different place. We're distorting reality. Now, notice how pervasive sin is in these lists. We actually kind of have two lists here. And they're similar. There's a description of the person, and then there's a description of kind of God's view of specific abominations that he hates. But look how pervasive sin is. Look how it, it gets into everything. Now, the, and these are not exhaustive lists, but it's enough for us to see that sin has affected every part of us. Our desires... Our actions, our relationships, our words, our thoughts, our emotions, our ambition, our imagination, everything is off. Now, not everything is as bad as it can be, of course, but everything is affected by sin. There's no part of us, just like there's no part of this world that is unaffected by sin. Notice also that sin is destructive. Verse 15. Therefore calamity will come upon him suddenly. In a moment he will be broken beyond healing. I thank the Lord that the Bible is honest with us. That the Bible tells us what happens if sin is allowed to run its course. There is calamity. There is brokenness beyond healing. We don't naturally get better. We get worse. Sin is a parasite that has the power to consume us completely. Sure, for a time it feels like it's under control. Sure, for a time it feels like we can contain the destruction, we can manage. But eventually, and it will feel like it's sudden, it always feels sudden to us even though it has a long time coming, but suddenly at one point we will, we will experience calamity and be broken beyond healing. Now listen to the destructive results of sin. A Dutch theologian says this, sin ruined the entire creation, converting its righteousness into guilt, its holiness into impurity, its glory into shame, its blessedness into misery, its harmony into disorder, and its light into into darkness. This is what sin has done to us. This is what sin has done to the world. When Adam and Eve opened that door, when they have rearranged God and humans in creation, everything 
was changed. Righteousness disappeared and was replaced by guilt. Holiness was replaced by impurity. Glory was replaced by shame. Blessedness was replaced by misery. Harmony replaced by disorder. And light replaced with darkness. To reject sin as the explanation of the human condition is not only foolish, because no other explanation really fits, but it is also detrimental. It's incredibly damaging because without the right diagnosis, we cannot find the right remedy. Sin is your greatest problem. Sin is our greatest problem. Communally or individually, on the level of your heart, on the level of your home, on the level of your interaction with your neighbors, on the level of your political engagement, on the level of your culture, sin is the greatest problem. It always is the greatest problem. And so I want to push you today to return to that. If you've been enamored with other explanations, I'm going to challenge you to see if they really work, if they really fit. I don't think they do. I don't think there's anything more fundamental, there's anything more, more basic of an explanation of our problems as sin itself. Are you trying to rebalance your life without dealing with sin? How many of us are trying to improve our lives without actually addressing sin? Which is the main cause of all our problems? Are you trying to change the world without dealing with sin? So many of us are, are so naive to think that we can just pick up a cause and make a difference without dealing with sin. None of the problems of our day can be addressed without seeing them in the larger context of sin. From gender confusion to racism, to poverty, to abortion, to misinformation. None of these things can be fixed simply with education, simply with goodwill, simply with policy, simply with dialogue, simply with therapy. Now, those things have their roles to play. But they cannot be effective if they operate based on a false diagnosis. I'm for therapy, I'm for better policy, I'm for better education, I'm for good dialogue, I'm for good, I'm, I'm all, for, all for all those things. But none of them can help, really, unless we see those things, the problems and the solutions, in the context of the basic foundational human condition of sinfulness. So this is where we are. I think this is a huge piece that even in our churches is often neglected and ignored and, and not emphasized enough. If we don't have this foundational piece, all those little pieces, they don't fit. So if that's our problem, and so far I've, I've described this problem largely in, in, a, in a horizontal way. I wanted to show that even to an unbeliever, even to somebody who doesn't know God and doesn't know anything about God, this should make sense. I think it does. I'm with Chesterton. I think it could be proven. I think it's self-evident that this is the problem. But we cannot really understand it. We can see it. We can acknowledge its existence. But we can't really understand it without seeing sin in relation to God. In fact, 
I think so many refuse to consider sin as the explanation of reality precisely because it forces them to consider their relationship with God. We prefer to come up with all sorts of ridiculous theories to explain why we are the way we are as long as we don't have to be accountable to God. So we'll come up with all sorts of fanciful things as long as we don't have to deal with God, His existence, His authority, what He demands of us. The greatest distortion of sin is the distortion of our relationship with God and our place in relation to Him. That's the core. If sin is distortion in general, then the greatest distortion is between us and God. We have to deal with sin, and we have to deal specifically with our relationship with God. If this is going to be rebalanced, it has to come at that center. Now, it's interesting, and I don't know if you noticed that, but in Genesis 3, it says that the, the tree from which Adam and Eve were forbidden to eat, just one tree among a huge garden, right? One tree where God says, do not eat of this fruit. It was in the middle of the garden. Now, why is that? Why did God put it in the middle and not somewhere on the fringes? Maybe somewhere where they wouldn't even be able to find it. Put it far away. Why put it right at the very middle of the garden? Well, Dietrich Bonhoeffer asked that question. And his answer is that the reason the tree is at the center is because this is where God is supposed to be. Because God belongs at the center. And the test and the challenge is to put God at the center. The whole thing, the whole sin, the whole fall of humanity has to do with removing God from the center. The imbalance of sin is ultimately because God is not at the center where he belongs. Everything is off because we have dethroned God. Now, we can place all sorts of other things and people on the throne. We can put all sorts of other things at the center, but none of them really belong there. And so because of that, everything else is going to be out of balance. Only God belongs in the middle. All sin is ultimately directed at God. Whether we consciously do that or not, all sin ultimately has to do with our relationship, our view of God, our responsibility before him. Now you remember the story of King David. King David took advantage of Bathsheba, murdered her husband Uriah. It's a terrible story. I think many Christians overlook the, the awfulness of that story. Um, it's not a small thing. That's not a mistake. This is a terrible sin. David sinned against Bathsheba. David sinned against her husband Uriah. David sinned against his nation. David sinned against many other people and institutions, and that he brought distortion into his world through his sin. And yet, when David writes his psalm, his confession, his psalm of repentance, Psalm 51, in verse 4 he says, against you, talking to God, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. I don't think this is because David is downplaying the damage caused to Bathsheba and Uriah and others. I don't think that's why he's doing that. 
I think he's returning to his right place before God. I think his world is getting rebalanced. I think his heart is getting recentered. And he's realizing that, yes, those things are awful and, and they're wrong and they're sinful. But the main problem, the main imbalance is between him and God. And unless he, he, he can change that, unless that gets fixed, those other things can't get fixed. The reason that his life feels like it's just spinning out of control is because the center didn't hold. Because his view of God was distorted. Because his obedience to God was distorted. Because he didn't do what he was supposed to do before God. And that brought all sorts of evil and abominations into his world. John Bunyan, the great Puritan, puts sin in its right context of our relationship with God when he says, and this is a, a harsh, clear definition of sin. He says, sin is the dare of God's justice, the rape of his mercy, the jeer of his patience, the slight of his power, and the contempt of his love. This is what sin is. When we sin, we dare God to punish us. It's the rape of his mercy. He's done so much for us. The jeer of his patience, the slight of his power, the contempt of his love. Every sin says, I don't think you love me. And so verse 16 now gives us God's perspective on this. It says that God hates sin. And that sin is an abomination to him. Hate and abomination are not words we like to use today, and some of us are not even allowed to say those words. But they are exactly the right terms to describe how God feels and what God thinks about sin. This is appropriate language. Hate and abomination. Everything we have is a gift from God. And we misuse it. We abuse it, every single gift that he gives us. Is it not offensive to God? Should God not be outraged that we take what he gives us and, and damage it and discard it and ignore it? Should it not be offensive to him? Should he be okay with that? God looks at his creation and sees how imbalanced and distorted and, and broken it is. Why would he not hate it? Why would God, looking at this world, looking at us, why would he not hate it? Why should he not be angry? Why is it wrong? You know, many people think it's wrong for God to be angry. Why is it wrong for him to be angry? I think this is completely appropriate. If we understand what it is, if we understand the depth of our problem, the scope of our dysfunction, just how broken we really are, how disregarding we are of God, if we really get this, the only reasonable response from God is hatred and repulsion. Why should he not want to judge it and set it right? You know, judgment is about fixing it's about balancing it back 
the way it's supposed to be. It's about making things right. That's what judgment is. Why would God not want to do that? Why would he be okay with the world the way it is? God's wrath is completely understandable given his love for his creation. Because if God really loves what he made, he would be outraged to see what it has become. He would hate it because he loves it. Sin is a destructive thing, and it is right for God to want to destroy what threatens to destroy what he loves. Now, I gave you a silly example of a book of poetry used to start a fire. Now, what if God is that poet? What if God brings you his creation, and he gives it to you as a gift, and he says, use it the way it's supposed to be used. Enjoy it. Be benefit from it. And we disregard him, and we use it for something completely different. Okay, it's a book of poetry. Not many of you are poets. Some of you say, ah, that's all right. We can, we can live without another book of poetry. But put it in different terms. What if God gives you a house, and you don't take care of it, and you, and you don't fix the damage, and you don't use it for what it's supposed to be used? What if God gives you a pet and you mistreat it? What if God gives you a child and you abuse him? What if God gives you anything, any gift of God, and what we do with it, we just take it and misuse it and abuse it? Why would God not be angry? Now place yourself in that situation, and the the first emotion that you feel is anger. Sin is an abomination to God. Abomination means it's something loathsome to him. It's it's disgusting. It's abhorrent. It's repulsive to him. God is repulsed by sin. When I think about what repulses me, I think of something that's just gross, right? I mean, that's what I think about. Like rotting food or festering wound. Like, it's gross, right? It makes your skin crawl. And then I think of humans acting in inhumane ways, and that is also repulsive. Somebody abusing a child, that's just, mm, you just can't, right? There's something, it's an abomination. Now God, we can rationalize a lot of sin. God sees sin exactly for what it is. He sees every misuse of every gift that he's given us. He sees every human purpose that has been twisted and warped. He sees every desire that's been distorted. He sees it exactly for what it is. And he says, this repulses me. It's not supposed to be this way. Food is not supposed to rot. Parents are not supposed to abuse their children. That's not the way it's supposed to be. And God is repulsed. And he says, this is an abomination to me. It has no place in my world. Do you see sin in that same way? It's that serious. It's that gross. It's that destructive. Unless we wrestle with these issues, unless we really understand God's wrath and stop apologizing for it and stop saying, it's like, yeah, the Bible talks about wrath, but let's focus on other things. No, the Bible talks about wrath because it's real. Because we are under God's condemnation, rightly so. Unless we use words like abomination and hate and use them properly, use them biblically, 
I don't think we can feel the weight of sin. And it makes it easy for us to rationalize it and excuse it and accept the cultural definition of sin. It's something that's just kind of fun, you know. It's just fun, acceptable vice. That's not what sin is. Sin is an abomination to God. It's repulsive. It's gross to Him. We have to wrestle with these things. We have to accept them as they are. Because if we don't get what sin is, we can't understand what's wrong with us, and we can't ultimately fix anything. And so I'll end on the solution. If we have the right diagnosis, what is the remedy? Well, if sin is as pervasive and destructive as the Bible says it is, the remedy cannot come from us. We can't fix it. We're too blinded. We're too distorted ourselves by by sin. And so God has to come in and fix it. God who is repulsed by sin, God who hates sin, but God who wants to redeem, God who wants to save, God who is also gracious, he comes and this is how he fixes it. God undergoes pervasive change by becoming human. And God is then destroyed by sin in our place. This is God's solution. Only God can can solve a problem like this, and only God can solve it in this way. In Jesus Christ, God became human. He entered our imbalanced, distorted world, and he fixed it from the inside. Behold the wonder of the God-man Jesus Christ. That is the only way we can describe it. It's a wonder. It's a mystery. It's something for us to marvel at. It's something for us, yes, to write poems about. Because the solution is so marvelous. It's so different. It's so out of the box. It's sort of anything that we can come up with. That it only makes sense if you know who God is and you know how bad our condition is. Now, if you are familiar with the gospel accounts, and I hope that you read the Bible and you read the gospels, you know how similar the fate of Jesus is to this passage in Proverbs 6. It is almost as if this wise man writing Proverbs 6 was describing what happened to Jesus. Jesus was arrested because of the pride, the haughty eyes of the religious leaders who envied him, protecting their position of power. They devised wicked wicked plans in their hearts And given opportunity, they quickly pursued evil, made haste to run to evil. A traitor was found among the followers of Jesus, among the brothers. Discord was sown. Jesus was accused of something he has not done. And false witnesses were recruited and used to convict him by their false testimony. His innocent blood was shed by the hands of the Roman soldiers. And on the cross, calamity came upon Jesus and he was broken beyond healing. Now, of course, we can't see Jesus' suffering and his death only horizontally. We can't just see it as something that just happened to him because of the brokenness of the world. Of course, that's true, but there's more to this. There's something even more important. On the cross, Jesus became sin in God's own eyes. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. Jesus became sin. God made him sin who knew no sin. That's amazing. It's wonder. Wonder of the God-man. On the cross, Jesus became an abomination. 
Jesus took God's hatred for sin. Listen to R.C. Sproul. This is from the book that many of you are reading this summer. The cross was at once the most horrible and the most beautiful example of God's wrath. It was the most just and the most gracious act in history. God would have been more than unjust. He would have been diabolical to punish Jesus if Jesus had not first willingly taken on himself the sins of the world. Once Christ had done that, once he volunteered to be the Lamb of God, laden with our sin, then he became the most grotesque and vile thing on this planet. With the concentrated load of sin he carried, he became utterly repugnant to the Father. God poured out his wrath on this obscene thing. God made Christ accursed for the sin he bore. And there was God's holy justice perfectly manifest. Yet it was done for us. He took what justice demanded from us. This for us aspect of the cross is what displays the majesty of its grace. At the same time, justice and grace, wrath and mercy, it is too astonishing to fathom. Sproul too ends on a note of worship. Just like all of us who meditate on the gospel, we end on the wonder of it. And we're saying, how can it be that God would become human? How could it be that God would become an abomination? That God would take her place on the cross so he could bear the hatred of God. That he himself would become this repulsive thing. So that his grace can pour into our lives so we could be healed. It is too astonishing to fathom that God himself would be destroyed by his hatred towards sin. So that we can be freed and healed from it. Jesus became an abomination so that we can be embraced by God. Jesus became hated so we can be loved. Jesus, crucified on the tree, returned God to the center of the world. Just as Adam, who sinned in the center of the garden by the tree, Jesus obeyed God on the tree and rebalanced things. Only the wonder of his grace can recenter our lives and eventually, eventually, it will rebalance the whole creation. Now, the world has no hope without it. And here's the Christian life. The Christian life is coming to the cross in repentance and faith and waiting for the whole world to be recentered around it. That is what we're doing right now. Every time we gather to worship, every time we come to the table, every time we meditate on the gospel, we're saying, we are here, Lord. We've come to the center, and we see you here at the center on the throne. We are gathered around you. We are already singing, and we're living in hope that when you return, the whole world will follow. The whole creation will be renewed and rebalanced and recentered, and things will be the way they are. And so when anybody would ask us then, why are you the way that you are? We would only be able to say because of Jesus, because he has redeemed us and because by his grace we 
are saved. And then we will sing then as we sing now, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. To him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Amen.